New York City is home to famously unique bookstores, like the Strand, Argosy Bookstore, and the Drama Bookshop. But it's no mystery why one specialty bookstore in New York City has been open for 40 years. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. The Mysterious Bookshop is one of the oldest and largest mystery fiction specialty bookstores in the United States. It was originally located in Midtown when it opened in 1979, but it now calls Tribeca home. We joined Otto Penzler, the owner at the shop, to talk about the store's collection of whodunits. So what makes the Mysterious Bookshop mysterious? It sells only mystery fictions, crime, suspense, espionage, thrillers, detective stories, that sort of thing. And it's uh, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary earlier this year. And it's a pretty big store, 2,000 square feet, filled with only those that kind of books. Happy anniversary, first of all. Thank you. So what inspired you to open a bookstore <clears throat> specific to mystery books? Well, I had started a publishing company some years ago called The Mysterious Press. And when I moved out of my apartment, because it was a one-man company and I was doing everything, uh, we moved into a brownstone house in Manhattan, and there was a lot of extra room. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a bookshop in addition to a publishing company? And that's how it started. It was not exactly a well-planned thing to do. Now, it didn't start out here in Tribeca, though, right? No, uh, the townhouse was in uh, 56th Street, kind of right behind Carnegie Hall, and uh, we were there for 26 years. I still call this the new store after 14 years. How did you know there was a market just for mystery books, a store all its own? I didn't. It was a wild guess. There had been a uh, mystery-only bookstore in New York called Murder, Inc., and I was a customer. I, I read books and collected books, and I was pretty much a regular there. But when I had the space to do this in, in the building uh, where I had my offices for Mysterious Press and where I lived, uh, it just seemed like a good idea. And it, it's been the greatest experience. It's just so much fun to do this. Did you grow up with an interest in mystery? Strangely, no. Uh, when I was young, I read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, I read classics, and I read science fiction. Uh, I was a fairly precocious reader, so I didn't read a lot of children's books. I started reading grown-up books, even if I didn't fully understand them, but I did like them and appreciate them. And when I went off to the University of Michigan, uh, I started out as a psych major, but I quickly changed over to an English major. And you know what you read when you read as an English major, Russian novelists, Ezra Pound, James Joyce. And when I came back to New York, I wanted to continue to read, as I always had done my whole life, but I didn't want to keep hurting my head. I wanted to read for fun. And I thought, you know, I've never read mysteries. Let me try that. And I started with The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which was, which I think should be required reading in every high school in America. And it really hooked me. And then I started reading the Golden Age writers, Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, John Dixon Carr. And then I discovered Raymond Chandler. And I realized, wait a minute, this is serious literature. It's not just puzzles. It's not just fun reading, but it's serious literature with something to say. Why do you think that Sherlock Holmes should be required reading? Because it is relentlessly fascinating. So many of the writers of the Victorian era and Edwardian era, which is when Conan Doyle wrote, 
uh, tend to be gas bags. They're long-winded. They're, they're a struggle to get through for a lot of readers. I mean, I love Victorian fiction. I think the greatest novel of all time is The Woman in White. But it's a little bit tougher for other people. Conan Doyle reads as if it had been written yesterday. It is every bit as straightforward and clean prose as, uh, as any writer working today and, and better than most. You have a whole section here devoted to Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, I'm a little excessive about it. The The entire back wall of the, book, of the bookshop is devoted to Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. There have been thousands, literally thousands of books written about Sherlock Holmes, either as parodies and pastiches or as critical works about uh, Conan Doyle's originals. Uh, and we have... Uh, more than 2,000 of them here. How many young people would you say today know who Sherlock Holmes is? Everyone. If they're literate at all, if they can read anything, they know who he is. He's probably the most famous person who ever lived. What would you say is your favorite Sherlock Holmes book? I guess it would, I'd have to say The Hand of the Baskervilles. It's a little trite to say that because I think it's most people's favorite. But the thing is, I can remember, and I'm not making this up, I can remember the book I was holding, where I was when I read that book for the first time. And I remember the moment where Dr. Mortimer comes to Sherlock Holmes and tells them of this horrifying murder and uh, th somebody's throat ripped out and said the body was surrounded by uh, footprints. And Holmes asks him, were they a man's or a woman's? Dr. Mortimer responds, Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Uh, the goosebumps I got at that moment are almost coming back to me now because I remember it so vividly. So where were you when you read that? I was in bed, which is where I really loved to read back in those days. Now I fall asleep. <laughs> if I'm reading in bed. But in those days, that was my reading time. I used to go to bed very early so I could get back to whatever book I was reading at the time. And I, the book I was holding was the one-volume, double-day edition of the complete Sherlock Holmes with a preface by Christopher Morley, which is one of the great short essays of all time and appreciation of Sherlock Holmes. How many people are walking through your doors specifically for that Sherlock Holmes collection? I'm not. I'm not sure, but it's it's a very it's a you know an ongoing interest that people have. Pretty much uh, most grown-ups now uh, have probably read Sherlock Holmes, and the ones who like mystery fiction and the ones who have an affection for Holmes see that they're oh wait there's another Sherlock Holmes story. You know Nicholas Meyer wrote a big bestseller in the, in the mid-70s called The 7% Solution, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for half a year. And, uh, and that opened the gates to many, many other people. There had been a few pastiches before that, but that really opened the floodgates. And people like John Gardner wrote a great book, and H.F. Hurd, A Taste for Honey. Uh, just wonderful, serious literature, really good writers. Do you have a lot of regular customers here at the Mysterious Bookshop? <clears throat> oh, yeah. We have, we have some customers who come in almost daily, which is crazy. Uh, they don't buy a book every single day, but they like the store. They feel comfortable here. It's kind of a home away from home. Uh, but there are plenty of people who do buy a book uh, or several books a week on a regular basis. Some have been customers for almost four, the whole 40 years. 
uh, and we have a lot of foreign customers, uh, customers not in New York City, but also in England, in Singapore, uh, France, Germany, etc., et who buy books from us on a very regular basis. Uh, we have customers who have a special shelves in our store where we accumulate books for them for two or three or four weeks and put together a box of books for them uh, once a month or so or every two or three weeks and ship them off. Yeah. Who are among the most popular mystery writers today? Working today in our store, there, there are some very, very popular writers who are not very successful in my store. And the major difference is because I was a collector. When I started the store, one of the first things that I wanted to do was to have authors come in and sign books. And that was almost unknown for mystery writers. Uh, poets had signings all the time. Uh, writers of Belles Lettres had, uh, you know, their, their following and they would sign books. Uh, but nobody ever did it for mystery f uh, fiction until I started it 40 years ago. Why is that, do you think? Mysteries in those t at that time were regarded as sort of the stepchild of literature. Uh, it wasn't taken very seriously. They were sent to the back of the bus. Uh, and time has changed that. There have been partly because uh, there were so many serious writers, such good writers, who have transcended the genre, which is a, a phrase that I don't like because in the genre, you can have a great book. It doesn't mean it transcends it. It just means that it's a, a great example of it. But also a lot of literary writers, writers known for the quality of their literary fiction, have turned to writing about murder and suspenseful situations and, you know, what, what I call uh, acting in extremis, where they're so angry or so fearful whatever it is that they kill people. Writers like most notable probably being Joyce Carol Oates, who writes uh, almost all of her books now, or certainly a large percentage, involve crime, uh, murder, violence, that sort of thing. So who are among the authors that did signings for you? Right. The most successful writers in our store are Michael Connolly and Lee Child. Uh, they're great friends of the store. They're so generous to us uh, that we actually help support them a little bit by putting their books up front or in the window. Uh, they come to sign every single book. Uh, Mike Connolly hasn't missed a book in 25 books, 26 books, uh, and neither has Lee. Lee started 15, about 15, 17 years ago and has been to the store uh, to sign every single book, no matter how inconvenient. Uh, and I'll tell you a story that he wouldn't want me to tell, but Michael Connolly flew up from Tampa to sign books for us and went back the next day. And I said, Mike, you don't have to do this anymore. You sell a million books and so on. He said, no, 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 you've been there from the beginning. I want to support. And he comes up to do that. It's the most generous gesture you could possibly make. Does that separate you from other bookstores like this, even across the nation, the fact that you have these signings? Uh, they sign in other stores. There are, there are other mystery stores in, in the country. Uh, at its peak, around 1985 to 95 or so, there were probably about 120, 130 mystery stores in America. Uh, there are probably only about 25 or 30 now. Uh, you know, Barnes & Noble helped kill a lot of them, 
and Amazon, you know, did produce the coup d'etat for most of the rest. Uh, but there are still a couple of other stores that are fairly successful or very successful, and writers do go there. Um, I just know that we have a continuity with a large number of writers who never will miss our store. It started with Dick Francis, who at, towards the end was signing in two stores, one in Virginia and my store. Robert B. Parker, the same thing. He, he signed at his local store up in Boston and signed for us, and that was it. And Mike, uh, Michael Connolly and Lee Child never miss one. But neither does Nelson DeMille, who is a great friend to the store. Uh, and there are many other writers like that who really have been tremendously supportive of, of the store, as we are of them. You know, we really go out of our way to promote the writers who are good to us. That said, is there anything in your collection here that separates you from those other mystery bookstores? Uh, definitely. There are two things. The big thing is that we do a lot of proprietary publishing. Uh, I commission short stories by major writers who uh, biblio mysteries, mystery stories with a book background, uh, whether it's a rare book or a bookshop or an archive or a library. And we've been doing those for some years. So those, the physical copies of the, the, those stories are available only in my bookshop. Uh, so that separates us. And we've been doing uh, limited editions, beautiful marbled boards, leather spines, stamped in gold, high-quality paper uh, for Michael Connolly. Lee Child, we've been reissuing the entire Jack Reacher series they're limited to only 100 copies. They're expensive. But Lee actually writes a new introduction just for those books. Um, and those are only available in, at this store and a couple of stores that buy some copies for their customers. But that's a major separation for us. Most bookstores are busy selling books. And we found that we couldn't quite make a living. New York expenses are very high between rent and taxes and paying a salary, a living wage to my staff, and so on. So we decided to do some publishing, and that's been the lifesaver for us. The other major thing is that uh, because I spent so many years as a collector of first editions of mystery fiction, I specialize in uh, rare books in the mystery world. And that is a... Uh, that's a whole separate area. You know, a lot of booksellers know more about new books than I do, I'm sure. But I really know the rare books very well because I collect. I was so busy collecting myself for so many years. What are among those rare books? Well, uh, there are first editions of Sherlock Holmes books. Uh, I've sold several copies of the Maltese Falcon uh, first editions of G.K. Chesterton, uh, Michael Connolly's first book and Lee Child's first book, Sue Grafton's first books have been very, uh, very popular here in the store and so on. Usually first editions, frequently signed, but not always. Uh, you know, we probably have at the moment a hundred different titles by Lawrence Block. Uh, we probably have 50 different titles by Donald Westlake, not to mention the thousands of Sherlock Holmes books that we have. So all of those are maybe not rare. Some are, some aren't. Uh, some are expensive and some aren't. But it's a wide range of out-of-print uh, and rare books that go up from, you know, we sell books on a $2 cart out front of the store 
<laughs> for books that haven't sold or that aren't in very good condition and have sold books, uh, sold items for as much as $100,000. How do you go about acquiring rare books? Do you go to estate sales? How do you go about that? Well, there's a, there's a variety of ways. I mean, there was a long time where I used to go book hunting. Uh, I'd get in the car, usually with another bookseller friend, and we would drive in a region of the country, say New England or the Southeast, uh, Canada, and uh, go into bookshops. As uh, Willie Sutton used to say, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. So I used to go to bookshops that, you know, weren't specialty stores but had used books and you could look through them. And if you know what you're looking for, you know what your customers are looking for, uh, I was able to buy a lot of books in bookstores. But I've been to auctions. I've been to estate sales. Very commonly now, uh, people, because we've been around for so long and know, and people know that we buy books and pay very fairly for them, uh, we get offers of uh, book collections on a very regular basis. I'm getting probably one or two a week, uh, many of which I can't buy because I, I have more books than customers already, uh, but many I do. What has been your greatest find? Oh, boy. That's really hard uh, and I'm not being evasive. It's just it's hard to pinpoint. I did buy a collection with a partner with another bookseller of twenty six thousand volumes once, and uh, there were a, that was a, that was pretty fabulous. Uh, but there have been some really great collections over time that uh, that I can't remember everything. I uh, can't remember all of it, but. Uh, Usually, the bigger the collection, the better it, the better buy it is, because you can pay uh, a fair amount for the collection, and then realize that there are a couple of books in there that, you know, that's a little bit better than I thought it was, or that's a little rarer than I thought it was, or I gee, I have so many customers who want that one, uh, you know, I could make the price a little bit higher than I had anticipated. So it's uh, it's an ongoing project. After forty years and the and literally thousands of collections, it's hard to say which was the best. How is the bookstore organized outside of the Sherlock Holmes wall? The the simplest way, because uh, with this many books, you know, if you, if you saw upstairs, it's a big store uh, for only one subject. There's a there's a paperback section and there's a hardcover section, and it's alphabetical by author. And we don't separate by category. We don't separate the new from the used. Uh, there's a single alphabet. If you are a fan of, say, Ian Rankin, you can find 20 books on the shelf, the new one, plus 19 backlist books. Who are among the most under-the-radar mystery writers, would you say? Uh, living or all-time? Let's start with living, and then we'll go to all-time. <clears throat> Uh, to me, the, the, one of the greatest writers of our time who is so underappreciated is a writer named Thomas H. Cook. Now, he's not un, totally unknown. He's been nominated for eight Edgars uh, and won one, uh, but he's not a household name. He is not, you know, one of the stars. Uh, Casey Constantine. Tells tells wonderful stories against a background of the of dying of a dying town in in central Pennsylvania, which are they're more novels than uh, than crime novels or mystery novels. And the same is true of Cook. It tells these beautiful, poignant stories 
uh, one of which, Red Leaves, uh, is really the story of a disintegration of a family because one of its members has been accused of, of a murder. Uh, and whether he did it or not, by the end of the book, we find that out. It's almost by the, you know, it's kind of beside the point almost because the novel has been so beautiful all its way. But it's a very legitimate mystery. In another book by Tom Cook, Sandrine's Case, uh, a man is accused of murdering his wife. And the book then becomes a trial where he won't defend himself. And his daughter, their, their daughter is there. Her mother is dead. Her father won't protect him, won't defend himself, and she doesn't understand why. And during the course of the trial, this man uh, finds out things about his wife that makes him fall in love with her all over again. I mean, not a dry eye. It was humiliating. I presented this book. I published this book, um, and I presented this at sales conference, and it was, it was still fresh in my memory, and it was so moving, so poignant, that I got tears in my eyes. And the sales director looked over at me, and it's a room of 40 people, and there's a phone where the salespeople from other parts of the country are listening in, and she suddenly yells out, he's crying, <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> but that's the way he writes, you know, so... Yeah, those are the two under-the-radar writers I can think of very quickly. And of all time? Of all time, I'm going to say James Crumley, who wrote what I would argue is the greatest private eye novel ever written, uh, the wonderful title, The Last Good Kiss. And uh, he inspired Dennis Lehane and Michael Connolly, and uh, that is a great tribute to them. And he's, he's well-known among people who really know mysteries. He's, he's and admi universally admired by people who, are, who like hard-boiled, tough-guy detectives. Uh, but the general public who know people like John Grisham and Lee Child and Michael Connolly uh, have never heard of him. And every time I, I introduce a, a reader, a customer in my store, to The Last Good Kiss... They say, oh, my God, how could I not have known this guy? What else has he written? And he's written uh, several other very, very good books. So I like, I like it when somebody asks me that question because I want other people to learn that this guy is so incredible. You mentioned the Edgars. For those not familiar with the Edgars, what are they? Oh, the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, uh, commonly known as the Edgars, uh, is the award given by the Mystery Writers of America in several categories, best novel, best first novel, best short story, best paperback original, and, and a few others, biographical critical work. I've won two of those, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that is, it's the Oscars of the mystery world. It's, it's about as good as you can get in the, as a mystery writer. How tight of a community is it, this mystery world? Uh, well, I, was, I just came back from the BoucherCon, which is the biggest uh, mystery convention in the world. It was over 1,700 people down in Dallas. It moves all around the country. It goes to a different city every year. And uh, there are a couple of things that are unique to the mystery world, I think. Fans love the writers, and writers love being around their fans. But as a mystery community, what's remarkable is 
the the generosity, the warmth of gener- of uh, of mystery writers to other mystery writers. They're helpful. They give them guidance. They give them encouragement uh, to either to their colleagues, their peers, or to beginning writers who are just getting published for the first time or wanting to be. It is the most kind and generous group of people that you could ever meet. They're they're not like the poets who are backstabbers. <laughs> and do they have a good sense of humor, would you say? They do as a general rule, uh as as a I mean I wouldn't say 100%, but gen- generally they do as a percentage of the po- population, I would think they have a higher sense of humor and a and a higher sense of of uh, of kindness and, and warmth. They, they can write their enemies into a book and have the catharsis of killing them. So not everybody gets to do that. I asked the question about the sense of humor, too, because you have some pretty comedic signs upstairs yeah. in the store. Uh, yeah, there's one. It was done by an NYU student uh, that said, nobody shoplifts in a store that has that knows 200 2347 ways to kill somebody which i think is great there there used to be a couple of others but when we moved from the uptown store the the, the signs got lost one was uh we specialize in murder mayhem violence isn't that fun <laughs> you have caution tape on your door yeah, up we here have as well. Tape to, to, because of going downstairs, we really don't want people to come down here because it's mostly publishing offices and shipping room and overstock and stuff like that. So there's really not much reason for them to come down here. But yeah, we have that on the on the door, and I don't remember how we got it, but I think a, a policeman uh, was kind enough to do that. Or we were we were a location for Law and Order. Uh, a couple of episodes, and they might have that. It might have come from one of those people. I don't remember now. It was a l- pretty long time ago. What would you say has surprised you most about being in this business now for forty years? What surprised me most, I think, is the authors and how f- wonderful they are. How how generous of spirit they are. How uh, how good they are to other people. Me, customers, readers and their fellow authors. It, it's just, it is the level of that kind of uh, human decency and civility is really a little bit surprising to me. You mentioned that if it were not for the publishing side, it would be so much more challenging for you to remain in business. Talk to me about the challenges of being a bookstore in today's digital age. Well, it's become harder, obviously. Amazon has been no friend to uh, independent bookstores. And before that, Barnes & Noble was no friend. And now they're suffering because of Amazon, too. Uh, Look, real estate in New York is expensive. There's just no getting around it. And there are a lot of other expenses that are unknown in other cities. The kinds of taxes that we pay, um, having to pay for for hauling trash, uh, that sort of thing paying staff a living salary in New York. This is a tough city. It's an expensive city. Um, so in order to keep a good staff, people stay here for long periods of time uh, because they like working here. I try to make it as pleasant as I can and pay them well enough to be able to live in New York. Medical insurance, of course, has become brutal. Uh, Obamacare did not exactly solve the problem. 
so all of those things, the overhead is massive. Beyond that, after after getting past the overhead, the the number of uh, drains on people's time, entertainment time, television, streaming, video games. Video games have now become a bigger part of the economy than movies. And, of course, movies. You know, all of those things uh, take people away from what they used to do, which is read books. Um, a lot of younger people aren't reading as much as people were at my, when I was young. Uh, so that makes it a, a, a struggle. The conglomerization of publishing into a few houses, uh, Random House, Penguin Random House, you know, publish, we probably buy a third of our books from one company. So the bills at the end of the month are brutal. Um, it's a small margin business. It's not like a, some dress shops, where, you know, where they buy something for very little and muck it up 10 times. And when they have a 50% sale, they're still making money. If we have a 50% sale, we're losing money on every book that we, that we own. So, it, you know, the margins are small. All of it is a struggle. As someone so involved in the mystery world, is it easy for you to figure out the whodunit? I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. Uh, I I always have been fooled. Uh, I'm a laughing stock. I'm always shocked when it's the least likely person. It's not why I read mysteries anymore. Uh, I, as I described earlier, I really read them for style and substance rather than just the puzzle. Otto, thanks so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, George. The Mysterious Bookshop is located at 58 Warren Street in Manhattan. Otto Penzler is the owner. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>